Because we all know that that's, that's a personality trait. Yes, likes books. That's my whole personality. <laughs> Welcome to Trope Confessions, the podcast where we discuss tropes, themes, and patterns in media and in the communities that surround them. Wait, wait, wait. We have to introduce Sam. Oh, yeah. I've <laughs> appeared out of the darkness. <laughs> Who are you? Just, she just showed up in the Zoom this morning. <laughs> Listeners, This is Sam, our wonderful producer. She's joining us today for a very special episode, a bonus episode, the first of its kind, but not the last. We are going to be discussing Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls for the uninitiated. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So before, before Maggie starts nerding out about probably her favorite television show ever, (laughs) Sam and Aya, tell me what the both of you know about Gilmore Girls. What do you guys know about this show? The most I know about Gilmore Girls is that I thought Lorelai was very hot. <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much it. I know how the, how the series begins and how it ends. That's all I really know. Okay, which ending do you know? Season seven or a year in the life? Oh, no. Because there are two endings now. Oh, my God. Okay, well, this is going to probably be a spoiler, which I guess maybe this whole episode is a spoiler for Gilmore Girls. Spoiler alert. Here's what I know. I know that Rory and Lorelai are both beautiful, and Lorelai had Rory really young. I do have the mom and the daughter correct, right? I'm not mixing them up. Yeah, Lorelai's the mom, Rory is the daughter. But technically, Rory's name is also Lorelai. So, Rory is short for Lorelai. That's that's confusing. You know what? Fine. (laughs) I know they're both hot, and, like, they get mistaken for sisters because Lorelai was so young when she had Rory, and there's not, like, a dad in the picture. And, like, there's, like, some plot element early on about whether or not Rory gets to go to some fancy school because it means taking money from the wealthy parents, and Lorelai doesn't want to do that because she's an independent, strong woman. And I know they drink a lot of coffee, (laughs) and I know that the coffee shop that they're always at, there's, like, there's, like, a hot guy Lorelai's age, and maybe they have romantic tension or maybe they don't or maybe this is just like a first season thing and because I've seen like the first two episodes I have a weird idea of where things are gonna go Mm -hmm. and I know that like Rory dates various people that's basically it (laughs) okay the first thing I want to say before I get too deep into this but for any listeners who want like a truly deep deep dive into Gilmore Girls I highly encourage you to listen to the Gilmore Guys podcast which is hosted by Kevin T. Porter and Demi Adijuibe it is like one of my favorite podcasts of all time so if you are at all interested in Gilmore Girls or you want to hear a funny conversation about every single episode of the show I encourage you to go listen to that I will say now that a lot of my analysis that I've done of this show, I I credit to Gilmore Guys. I think that there is like twice as much content of Gilmore Guys than there is of Gilmore Girls. I love what the analysis of a thing is longer than the media that it is analyzing. Yes. (laughs) Okay, Maggie, what would you say is the point? Like, what's the pearl? What's the like... The Tao of Gilmore Girls. (laughs) I feel like those are two different questions. There's the thing that I love, and then there's also the question of, what is the point of the show? What was Amy Sherman Palladino trying to do? In terms of, like, my love of it, I started watching it when it came on the air. 
it was like a point of connection often with daughters and mothers because the theme of the show is so intrinsically tied to the relationship between Lorelai and Rory. And Mm -hmm. my dad would always leave the room when we were watching it. He's like, feminine energy. So this is an example related to our last episode where the detailed and specific family relationship actually makes it easier to see yourself in them because you notice that specificity and it feels like it's talking to you. Yeah, the family unit of Rory and Lorelai and that friendship that they have, I think it's kind of what keeps me coming back to the show. Two weeks ago was the 20 year anniversary of the pilot airing. Wow. And I saw that and it sent me. I can't believe the show started 20 years ago. (laughs) I was not Nine years old. Debuted October 5th, 2000. Mm-hmm. Wow. And actually the other thing that I think we, we touched on briefly in our last episode that kind of was like a subtype of the orphan trope is that reversal of parent and child. Even though Lorelai is very accomplished, Rory is this studious and bookish kid that in a lot of scenarios does kind of act as the mature person Mm. in the relationship. And I think that it is interesting to see Mm -hmm. early on when she's a teenager, there's that reversal of the role where the child is acting more like the parent. Right. Yeah. And I guess I should give a little bit of a general plot overview before I get into the analytics of this. Aya's summary of the first couple episodes is very accurate. So basically, Rory has the opportunity to go to Chilton, which is this very high class, expensive, exclusive prep school. And in the first episode, she gets accepted but there's like a certain sum of money towards the tuition that she has to send them by a certain date and otherwise Rory gives up her spot at the school. So basically there's all this hand-wringing of how am I going to pay for it and that's how you are introduced to the grandparents. So Lorelai goes to them and is like I don't have the money to afford this, but this would be a really amazing opportunity for Rory. This is how she's going to get into Harvard because that is the the goal. The whole point in the pilot is it sets up the dynamic between Lorelai and the grandparents and Rory and Lorelai and then that basically sets up the dynamic for the rest of the show. So the deal that Emily, the grandmother, strikes with Lorelai is that they'll give her the money for the school mm-hmm. if she and Rory come to dinner every Friday night. So Friday night dinner is set up as this thing in the show and basically every ep- almost every single episode has a Friday night dinner where they go and they have dinner with the grandparents. Oh no, having to hang out with your family that's rich. It must be so hard. <laughs> I know. Would you say that it's a product of its time, just given like the era that it was made? Early aughts media? Yeah. You feel like this economic precipice and the fact that they are middle class women? (laughs) Yes. Bringing up the question of the economics of Gilmore Girls is really Mm -hmm. interesting because throughout the series, you know, they like talk about struggling financially and obviously like having to go to the grandparents to pay for the school. And yet they eat out constantly. They're rich and they they just act like they are poor. My hard knock life in Connecticut. (laughs) Right. In this like really nice Victorian house in this idyllic Mm -hmm. tiny town. I mean, basically every sitcom that's set in the, quote, real world has this issue. Mm -hmm. Unless, like, money and economic struggle is, like, a focus of it in, like, a real class-conscious way, I tend to feel like we just blur over this, and when it needs to be an issue for the plot, then it's an issue. But otherwise, no, we're not going to deal with it. 
conveniently wealthy. Yeah. It would be so easy for mm-hmm. Lorelai to kind of ingratiate herself back to her parents and just live off of their wealth. But she refuses to do that. But then, like, it keeps coming up again and again that they do go back to the grandparents for money. And and they don't really explore, like, the genuine struggle. Yeah. It's much different when you're struggling and you don't have those resources. Yeah, to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like there's this tendency in people who make TV and and film to, like, glamorize the people who go out and make it on their own, like, without their parents' help. Mm -hmm. What about people who don't have the parents' help to fall back on? Yeah. Like, how much of Lorelai's struggle was put on her because of her own impression of what people thought of her, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, it's the shame that's holding you back. It's not the money. That's kind of my understanding where Suki had Mm -hmm. to be the voice of reason of, like, go talk to your wealthy family and get us out of this pickle. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a different journey. So I've been thinking about the whole like fatal flaw character changing is like the point of the story idea, which is one school of storytelling. And I have a really hard time understanding how to apply that on like a serial type of story, like where it's not just one book or one movie, but like, you know, several seasons of television or several books. Right. I'm curious if you think that Lorelai has one main arc or if it's like several different ones or does she have to learn the same lesson several times. Mm -hmm. It's a more interesting question when applied to Rory, because obviously we have to talk about Rory's boyfriends. (laughs) Are any of them evil? Uh, Honestly, all of them are. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like, but not like the, not like evil boyfriend TM, but just like, oh, I think you're all bad people. (laughs) Right. Lowercase E. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, in terms of the like fatal flaw for Rory is that she is extremely spoiled and entitled. Really? And that just gets worse the longer the show goes on. Yeah. In the first three seasons, Rory's at this made-up prep school. And then when she goes to college, she ends up going to Yale, not Harvard, so that she is still close to home. And at the end of her sophomore year at Yale, basically she has this, like, crisis of confidence and she drops out of Yale. So this causes a huge rift between the two of them because Lorelai's like, you have to finish college and get a job. And, like, this is just, like, what you have to do. You can't take a break. And Rory's like, oh, no, you know, like, people do this all the time. I'm just, like, figuring things out. Blah, blah, blah. And then she goes crying to the grandparents and is like, everything's ruined. My mom doesn't understand and so the grandparents let her move in to the pool house at their mansion (laughs) rory also like right around when she drops out of yale she steals a yacht so she gets arrested and is charged with a felony that's the whitest thing i've ever heard (laughs) well this is also with like the worst of the boyfriends to be honest the most evil of the boyfriends i like the middle boyfriend and then the other two i'm just like ew you're the worst. <laughs> yeah, so I think that those moments of conflict with Rory do force Lorelai to like engage with her parents in a way where obviously their relationship has always been combative, but Lorelai goes to the grandparents and asks them for help and she's like basically like we we are going to work together to make sure she doesn't drop out of school. And then after that is when Rory goes to them and is like I need help and they take Rory's side. 
which I think is also interesting in terms of that grandparent-grandchild dynamic as opposed to parent-child. Yeah. Because they have that softer approach to her, and they also have this really fractured and difficult relationship with Lorelai, and they're like, we don't want that with Rory. This is our second opportunity to have a better relationship. While Lorelai is like kind of her parents now in that total subversion. Exactly. Right. And that's something that's really difficult for her to come to terms with too, because she is just like, I don't want to be the Mm -hmm. parent that alienates my child. Yeah. But she's also like, I can't allow you to give up on this opportunity that I worked so hard to get you, basically. Would you say that's like the philosophy of the show then? Nobody wants to turn out like their parents in some aspects, right? Like, don't make the same mistakes that they did. I don't know. Would you say, I guess, the point, quote unquote, is that examination of family dynamics. Is that the pearl? Yeah, I definitely do. I think upon deep examination, though, the thesis is kind of depressing because it's basically like you have no choice but to become your parents and that it's inevitable that you will become them. Yeah, no matter how you try. And And I don't know if Amy Sherman Palladino realizes that that's what she's saying. That's always a really interesting question is whether the like subtext that emerges is intentional or not. Yeah. Well, and so this other piece of lore that exists in the show. So there was the first six seasons that were on the WB. And at the end of the sixth season, Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband, who were like, she's the showrunner. And he was like the executive producer, one of the head writers. The basically the show was like just them more or less. Like they didn't really have a writing staff and they were producing these like massive scripts. Like they were like twice as long as other hour long shows in terms of the page count and all this stuff. Oh, that's why they have to talk really fast. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the sixth season, they were forced to walk because the network wouldn't give them what they wanted. So season seven was show run by a different person. But there was always this lore that like Amy Sherman Paladino always said, like, I know exactly how the show is going to end down to the final four words. That is like this thing that existed in the fandom for years. And we like never thought we were going to know what are the final four words. We're never going to get to learn this. Did you predict what they were though? Did you Mm -hmm. think that it was going to be Rory telling Lorelai that she's pregnant? No, I didn't. Because I was like, no, that would be terrible. That would be a terrible ending. What did you think it was going to be? I thought it was going to be something innocuous, like mm-hmm. see you at Luke's or something like that. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Things have changed, but we're still us and we're exactly. going to do our thing. Exactly. It is pretty like on the nose for her to be like, mom, I'm yeah. pregnant. She has confirmed that that is always how she planned to end the show. But I think it's very different to think, okay, she was going to end this the show this way when Mm -hmm. Rory was 22 versus when she's 32. Yeah. One thing I haven't mentioned in this episode, in this conversation, is that Rory, her whole dream is to become a journalist. You're supposed to believe that she is this amazing writer. And like, there's a moment in the first season where she writes a story about the repaving of the school parking lots. And the teacher who moderates the school paper is like, this is the most touching piece of journalism I've ever read. This has heart, kid. (laughs) Yeah, sure. The show tells you throughout that Rory is this incredible writer and this amazing journalist. Mm -hmm. And yet in all of the actions that she does in the show, it's like, She's bad at this. 
She's not a good journalist. Oh, I love this. This needs to be a trope of its own. The show overtly in the text of the show tells us one thing, yes. but in like action of the character, it says the opposite. Yeah. So basically like you throughout the show are kind of led to believe like Rory is destined for this amazing career. But then in various instances of the show, you see her journalism and she's bad at it. Like one of the boyfriends is in a secret society at Yale. Is he in the ninth house? No. Oh, no. The one he's in is not as cool as Ninth House. <laughs> does he do secret magic rituals? Is he truly an evil boyfriend? <laughs> I mean, he does. There is this moment where he, like, has bought her a dress and it fits her perfectly. And he's like, I have an eye for sizes. I don't like that. Nope. <laughs> That's weird. Very weird. Do you think anyone's done crossover fic? Of uh, the Life and Death Brigade in Ninth House? I hope so. <laughs> No, if anything, Logan is the guy in Ninth House who was doing that blood ritual to get his novel written. That's Logan. And I guess we'll go backwards with the boyfriend. So Logan is the final boyfriend. And then at the end of the series, presumably he is Mm -hmm. the father of her child. And his dad is a newspaper mogul. And he's part of the secret society. So they invite her to their big event that they do, like out in the woods. It's like 1930s safari themed event. And... Then she's, like, going around, like, kind of asking questions and stuff, but basically, like, not following through on any of the most interesting elements of this. Yeah. It's basically, like, she kind of had to be, like, handheld to Mm -hmm. even get to this event at all. So that's just one example of... And then at the end of season five, when this is when she like steals the boat and stuff, she goes to Logan's family's house and Logan is like next level rich beyond the Gilmores. And so his family is like, this girl's not good enough for you. And then she's like, but I'm a Gilmore. Yeah. Um, So as a kind of peace offering, Logan's dad, the newspaper mogul, offers her an internship at one of his papers. And she's at, she does the internship for two weeks and then he sits her down and he's basically like, you don't got it, kid. Like, good luck. But I don't, you just, I don't think you have it. And so this one (laughs) conversation with this guy sends her into a spiral, bombs all of her finals, and she goes to find Logan, who's at this party on at a marina, and is like, I need to be at sea. And so they go steal a boat. <laughs> and then Rory gets arrested. So you get this whole impression like, okay, maybe Rory doesn't got it for doing doing journalism. And then, like, she picks herself up by her bootstraps and reinvigorates her love of journalism in the following season. But then fast forward 10 years to when the revival came out and it's like she's had this career for 10 years and is like still bad at it. (laughs) I think again, like that kind of cyclical nature of, you know, you're destined to become your parents and also Rory's destined to become Lorelai. Well, so, so what's like, what's like the point of that? Is she meant to fail at journalism? The one thing she's always thought she was destined to do for a reason? Like, is there a flaw in the storytelling? So here's the thing. I don't know that in the writing of it, you are supposed to think that she's bad at it. That's what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. In text, through the rest of the original run of the show, you're supposed to be like, oh, so this guy was just being an asshole 
to you and he basically was like you're not good enough for my son so I'm gonna dash your confidence essentially that's kind of like what you're led to believe in the text of the show yeah but then when it came back it's just like okay were you really trying to tell us this whole time that Rory is a really good writer Mm -hmm. or is she not a good writer and and I think this is kind of an existential question that has plagued the fan base of the show because it's like are we supposed to love Rory or are we supposed to hate her Mm -hmm. because like we don't know yeah Interesting. Because, like, by the end of the revival, it's like, I do hate her. You do hate her at the end. Okay. I was going to ask, because, like, you love this show. How do you feel about her? Like I said, I think overall her fatal flaw is being entitled and being spoiled and essentially getting things handed to her. Yeah. So the reason that she is failing at the thing that she always thought she wanted to do is because she's actually having to do the work to be successful. And she doesn't want to do that. Does she ever pull herself out of it and face it and, like, overcome her fatal flaw? Or does she not? By the end of the revival, she's, like, instead of trying to be a journalist, she's like, oh, I'm going to write a book about my mom and me and my relationship with my mom. So she's writing a book called The Gilmore Girls (laughs) is how the show ends. And then she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Like, I feel like she doesn't really overcome her fatal flaw because... She just kind of gives up when things aren't handed to her. And it, and it is interesting, because especially, like, early in the show, you're kind of led to believe that, like, oh, Rory is really bookish. She cares more about reading and about school than she does about boys, which is true mm-hmm. for an episode, basically. <laughs> and then, but for the, mo- the most part, the st- like, Rory's arc is all about the boyfriends, and it's all about these guys that she's debating between Mm, so it's the love triangle angle yes and it's like she's like basically apart from the first season is always in a love triangle i mean that's the cw for (laughs) you yeah or the wb or whichever it ended up being yeah it was the wb at the time but so having not seen it i feel that rory's decision to write a book instead of being a journalist Mm -hmm. could actually be framed as her facing her fatal flaw or it could be framed as a failure and the question whether or not it's one or the other hinges around how it affects her relationship with Lorelai since that is the main thing in the story, right? So like Rory's failure or achievements are reflective of Lorelai more Mm -hmm. than they're reflective of Rory herself. Then Rory deciding I'm going to write this book about my mom and I'm going to accept that this is like the most important thing, more important than journalism, more important than me getting whatever I want. That actually could be her facing her fatal flaw. Like this thing that I thought was really important actually isn't that important. This other thing is. So I guess I'm curious if that framing works or if it's a matter of interpretation or if you reject it. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a valid interpretation. And I think it really, it does depend on the perspective. I'm going to throw another element into the conversation here. The one boyfriend that I have not mentioned yet, who is my favorite, Jess. Kevin T. Porter coined this term, deus Jess machina. (laughs) So Rory's like on her bullshit and then Jess shows up. And is like, why did you drop out of Yale? 
is the intonation. We've definitely mentioned like the evil boyfriends versus like bad boy with a heart of gold. Mm -hmm. Jess is definitely like bad boy with a heart of gold status. Oh, my favorite. Yeah. Issues with authority. (laughs) Yeah. So his mom, who is very inconsistently characterized, but I feel like that's going to be too much minutia for me to get into today. But basically you're kind of led to believe she is an unfit caretaker and his dad is not in the picture. So he gets sent to live with Luke in Stars Hollow and, you know, is Mm -hmm. the anti-establishment punk kid. Yeah. But he is intrigued by Rory because they both love books. Because we all know that that's that's a personality trait. Yes, likes books. That's my whole personality. (laughs) I mean, I think there was a time when that was my personality, but like, I wasn't 17. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I think that might have been our personality when we met in fifth grade. Right. Yes. All right, so so that's so that's Jess. Okay, he has an a, like a redemption arc that I think most of the audience just projects onto him because it's mostly off screen. Yeah, so like as like the bad boy boyfriend who like doesn't respect Lorelai and has this issue with authority, but then each time he comes back, he's like improved a little bit. And he's like, oh, I've grown enough that I can now tell Rory that I love her. And I'm reading this self-help book to help me be honest with my feelings and stuff. (laughs) But she doesn't end up with him, right? No, so she doesn't end up technically with any of them. Oh, good for her. But she is theoretically pregnant by Logan. But we it's unconfirmed. It's not like clear. It's no, it's not. Okay, so so here's something that I didn't quite understand. For some reason I thought that like Rory's arc was going to involve her finding the right one or whatever and it probably being none of the original 3 and like that's the person she got married to or something like that and has a kid with. But you're telling me that in fact at the end of the series she's pregnant and single just like Lorelai was. And so the question I think that I have is in in the show, is that a good thing? Is it a neutral thing? It's unclear. If there is a value judgment placed on it by the show, it's not clear. Okay. So Rory's dad is a character, but so you kind of get the impression that he's been in and out of her life, but he is around and he is like, okay, I'm, I'm here when I can be, but for the most part, he's kind of a deadbeat okay. dad. Yeah. And so in a way the kind of two love interests that Rory is battling between towards the end of the show, which being Jess and Logan, are kind of foils or reflections of Luke and Christopher, who is her dad. So, like, Logan is like Christopher and Jess is like Luke. So kind of the impression that you get is, like, she and Logan have said their final farewell. And then a couple scenes later, find out that Rory is pregnant. But she and Logan have had this final farewell because he's like engaged to someone else and has been having an affair with Rory. But Jess is back in Stars Hollow and they're just like really good friends now. Mm -hmm. So what you get kind of get the impression that Jess is going to play the role to Rory's child that Luke played to Rory because he, he did kind of stand in as the father figure for her. Right. That's, that is kind of the dynamic that I think is suggested at the end of the the series. So not necessarily that Rory and Jess end up together, but that they do have a similar dynamic to the Luke, Lorelai, Rory situation. That makes sense. So it is like, I, I don't know. Like, I think that maybe Amy Sherman Palladino views that as, satisfactory like good ending like this is kind of what was meant to be where Mm -hmm. like 
Rory didn't go down the path she originally anticipated, but she's writing this book and she is going to have a daughter like her mom did and, you know, kind of make a life for herself. That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like the close of the loop has to do with accepting that life does not go the way that we maybe anticipate and that that's acceptable. Yeah. Although that is, I think, an acceptable way for this series to end. Mm-hmm. It felt unsatisfying as an audience member. Now, were you in the majority in feeling unsatisfied by the last season? Like, was this a How I Met Your Mother where basically people were like, excuse me? Kind of. Okay. Like, I think that there was a small group of people that were like, I'm super satisfied with the ending. I thought the last four words were great. I loved it. I think it was worth it for the show to come back. But also, Mm -hmm. I'm not totally satisfied with the way that the show ended. There are a lot of reasons for that that go are like not direct plot elements, but kind of the way that the show was structured on Netflix. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's the fault of of the writing of the characters necessarily. But there was definitely like, I think, misappropriated screen time to certain bits that were like, did you really need to like spend 15 minutes doing a musical when you could have been visiting with other characters that we haven't seen at all? Yeah. Seeing the cyclical loop being the way that it was always intended to end. But why was that the way that the creator wanted to end the show when it doesn't feel like Rory has grown and overcome a a fatal flaw, you know? It's like Rory's plot line doesn't feel like it begins until the end. But it wasn't satisfying because of the character development or lack thereof? Yeah, I mean, each of these were like an hour and a half long. So, you know, what is that? Like six hours of content. Like you couldn't have moved up her journey a little bit. So it felt like she had an arc throughout this, the revival episodes, as well as Lorelai's. Yeah, it sounds like the journey there was lacking. Mm -hmm. The thing that like to connect it back to Jess is like when Rory decides to write the book, she doesn't even come up with the idea herself. Like, so Jess comes back to Stars Hollow in the revival and is like, you know what you should do? You should write a book about you and your mom. I see. So it's like Rory doesn't, isn't even the driving force behind deciding to write the book. Well, especially if it's a dynamic duo. It's Lorelai and Rory. Rory should have some agency in her own damn life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it seemed like too much at one time, kind of like the uh, the Game of Thrones dissatisfaction we felt with Daenerys in theory. It could have been done in a very sensible way, but because there was so little time, um, I'm getting the impression that that was kind of a similar thing in this scenario. They just didn't have enough time to really get her there in a satisfactory way. Um, that's a really good point. It reminds me of two points of critique that I've been like engaged with in, in my writing and critique group and stuff like that. So the first is that sometimes people are more interested in holding some kind of like like dun 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 dramatic reveal and so then they hold on to that card but they hold on to it too long so like the dramatic reveal is great and in this case it's like that she's pregnant but if the reveal is the point and not the journey about the reveal then i think it falls flat yeah so then the second thing is like you were just saying sam about agency if the end result is the same but in one scenario the character drove themselves there and in the other one the character was driven there it does not feel the same to the audience. And so I think in this case, it sounds like maybe the writers were more invested in getting there by any means necessary than about ensuring that the dri- the character was in the driver's seat the whole time. To me, like that's like one of the biggest like 
story killers. Yes. But another big critique that I think a lot of people rightfully have of Amy Sherman Palladino's writing, because this isn't just in Gilmore Girls, like she does this in, in her other shows too, is a lot of really important events happen off screen. So you hear about it and you don't actually see it happen. And I think in some instances that can be very effective. Yeah. We don't see this fight between Lorelai and Christopher, but we hear about it later because what matters to us is what how it, that impacts Lorelai and how it impacts Lorelai's relationship with Rory, that kind of thing. But then there are other times where, like, they'll be having a conversation about something that happened off screen, and it's like, why didn't you just show that to me? You know, where it's like, oh, I actually wanted to see that argument between these two characters because I want to know. Yeah. And I think it also brings up an interesting question of, like, is Lorelai a reliable narrator in her own life? Because you kind of, you get little nuggets revealed along the way of the things that her parents did for her or tried, you know, trying to help in her life in ways that she's always asserted, you were never there for me and you didn't do this for me. Well, and that actually, that, that fits into her journey, it sounds like. If she is has been an unreliable narrator, and then later she recognizes that maybe she didn't see everything that they did for her, that could actually really fit into her journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for Lorelai, for sure, that works, like, really well. Yeah, well, and that brings up such an interesting point of the themes of motherhood in Gilmore Girls. Basically, the audience is kind of in Rory's position as well. Like, the unreliable narrator is her mom. You're only as good as, like, your first mentor. So for Rory, it's Lorelai, and she has this disposition, like you've mentioned. Oh, my parents were not there for me. They didn't give me the support I needed. And that's the her side of the story. But it, it's sounding like when Rory develops the relationship with her grandparents, she's able to see, like, although I share this very strong relationship with my mother, there are going to be flaws. Her word is not law. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you hit that on the head. Yeah. What it's making me think of is the way in which storytelling elements, like speculative elements, they need to be tied into the the journey the characters are going on to be effective. But in in contemporary stories, you know, you don't you don't have, you know, a fearsome dragon to stand in for the fear of death or the evils of the world or anything like that. But you do have storytelling elements like what you're pointing out right now, like the unreliable narrator and like choosing not to show something or choosing to show it in order to highlight the differences in how people perceive things. Yeah. So what what I'm getting out of this is that Gilmore Gore, I cannot say the title for life. Me. Gilmore Girls. <laughs> it's like red leather, yellow leather, Irish wristwatch, Gilmore Girls. I got it. So Gilmore Girls is a story about motherhood, about relationships between different generations and how they interplay. And I think I would be willing to check it out, not only for that aspect, but of course the love triangles. Mm -hmm. What about you, Aya? I really think that I thought that it was more about the romantic relationships than about like the familiar relationships. I don't know why I thought that, but I think this conversation definitely changed my belief about what the focus of the show is and did make it sound much more interesting to me. I'm, I think knowing that it has to do with um, familial relationships, especially like between Lorelai and her parents and stuff does make it sound more appealing to me. Um, and I've always been like kind of curious about it. What I, what I feel about it is that I will probably knit to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Gilmore Girls is definitely a show that it's perfect for knitting, too. Mm -hmm. And I would say you both 
nailed it in terms of the themes and everything. And and which is not to say that certainly I think it has the reputation of being the show about the boyfriends because the marketing of it really focused on that. And in the thick of the show, a lot of the question is like, which boy is Rory going to end up with? And that's certainly a huge part of it. And Mm -hmm. again, you know, like we talked about in Love Triangles, there was like this whole team aspect. Like, are you team Jess, team Dean or team Logan? Obviously I'm team Jess. I'll just put that on the record. I I do think the things that stand the test of time about the show are the family relationships, and especially Lorelai and her parents. Maybe it's a product of the fact that we are all in our late 20s, that that is more relatable to us now than the relationship drama of being a teenager. But definitely, yeah, I I hope that, I don't know, you guys will pick it back up and give it another chance. Um, If you are intrigued by the oeuvre of Amy Sherman Palladino, I... Definitely encourage you to watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I didn't even know that she did that. Oh, Yeah. Love that show. Brassy, uh, sassy, brunette heroine uh, is kind mm-hmm. of her Amy Sherman Palladino's thing. Um, but Marvelous <laughs> Mrs. Maisel, I think, captures a lot of the elements, like the relationship and family elements and the personal journey that you see in Gilmore Girls. And just kind of puts it in a different setting. And really, it's just, I think, really showcases her writing ability. Um, So if you're like kind of intrigued by Gilmore Girls, but some of the kind of low rent quality of it isn't for you, uh, that, (laughs) you know, very early aughts style, try Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, because that is also one of my favorite shows. So, so good. Gilmore Girls. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge about Gilmore Girls. I expect it to come up more, and hopefully it'll be more relevant to me now. I do always find a way to relate it to everything. Yes. (laughs) It's a perfect show for this time of year, too, because it just always feels like autumn. It's a very, like, autumnal show, so. Yes. Come to Connecticut. It's autumn perpetually, and you can steal yachts, and... (laughs) Yes. It's a good time. I don't know what it is about Connecticut, but I feel like the only things that I've like seen set in Connecticut or that I like think about regarding Connecticut are all in October. Yes. Like witches are going to be there for sure. That's Connecticut. Yeah, Connecticut and Massachusetts. I have that association with Massachusetts as well. I would say mine is Maine. Stephen King just loves Maine. He loves it so much and it sounds appealing. I don't know. Uh, confession, I have yeah. never read a Stephen King novel. I haven't either. Am I the only one who's consumed that trash? <laughs> I Okay, here's the thing. He's a household name, right? So it's, if anything, just an education in somebody that's... Yeah, popular. Very, very popular. And his life story is just really intriguing to like know how many books he wrote on cocaine. <laughs> Speaking of books, Aya, what are you reading right now? I just started reading... The Song of Achilles. Nice. Mostly because freaking everyone that was a mentor for Pitch Wars listed it as like one of their favorite books. And I was like, okay, what is this? So I sat down everything else that I was like in the middle of during moving and everything and just was like, okay, I just need one paperback. I have a bunch of other books that I'm in the midst of, but that's what I'm like kind of actually reading right now. Maggie, what are you reading? Well, so I was trying, I was looking back at my list of things that I've read since the last time we talked about this. I've actually read several things. Shh. 
show off? <laughs> I'll just list them all off first and talk about the ones that are actually interesting. So since the last time we, we talked about this, I read a YA contemporary fantasy called Wicked Fox, which is set in modern day Seoul and incorporates um, a lot of Korean mythology, which was really cool. Ooh. I read Big Friendship by Aminatu So and Anne Friedman, which is a nonfiction book Um, Kind of a joint memoir and just basically about adult friendships, particularly adult friendships among women. Really, really good. Um, I attempted to read Midnight Sun. (laughs) I could not get through it. (laughs) Venture into that 750-page monstrosity at your own risk. (laughs) I read Cemetery Boys, which is the debut novel from Aidan Thomas. It's about a young trans brujo basically trying to prove himself to his family of brujos and brujas. It's all set during Day of the Dead. It is so cute and was so good. And I loved the representation in it. And the setting was really great. And the characters were just like so fleshed out and really like lovable and wonderful. So um, that's Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. Very, very good. And then... I read Fun Home by Alison Bechtel, which is a graphic memoir. Oh my gosh, that was also really amazing. That's for my book club. And then just yesterday I finished You Should See Me in a Crown, which is a YA contemporary by Leah Johnson. And that is about um, a young girl. She's the only black girl in her high school. And she is basically trying to get out of small town Indiana to go to this fancy college. And she finds out that she didn't get the financial aid she was set to receive. So she competes in the school's prom king and queen election situation because there's a scholarship that comes along with that. And then along the way, she falls in love with one of the other candidates for prom queen. Oh my god, I love it! It was so cute. It was really good. Okay, I'll, I'll add it to my list. Yeah. Hey, I saw that you DNF'd um, A Song of Wraiths and Ruins. Tell me why. Everyone is talking about it. Yeah, so part of it was that it was really overdue at the library. So I was like, I don't think I'm going to finish this in time and I really need to return it. And the other thing was, I think it was a world building thing for me that was just like kind of overwhelming and that I, I guess I just like didn't have the patience for it. And I feel really, I felt really bad. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can pick it back up and like get it from the library again when there's not such a long wait list for it or, you know, when there aren't like a bunch of people waiting for it after me. Like, I, I don't know if you've experienced this in reading particularly like YA fantasy in recent years but it just feels a bit formulaic what is that formula in your mind the I don't know I like I feel like I need to think on it to really put it to words it's just but it's like as I am reading through it I'm like okay so like the next beat is going to be where you know something supernatural happens that's like putting the main character in peril and then okay they're going to have to, you know, get out of it in a particular way. And yeah, I feel like I'm not describing it very well, but it just felt like predictable in the way that I found boring. I think I've mentioned this in a past episode too, where it's like, it didn't make me feel like smart for figuring it out. It was like predictable, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. Sam, what are you reading? Uh, I'm in the middle of rereading a book that I actually forgot was so freaking funny. Uh, It's called Hope, Colon, A Tragedy by Shalom Auslander. And uh, I don't... 
I don't know how to exactly describe this book without like giving away kind of one of its bigger reveals as we're talking about predictability and reveals and stuff like that. But self-deprecating humor is a huge aspect of this book, which I love so much. Highly recommend it. To, to tie this back to Gilmore Girls, you know, the aspects of family and what's expected of you and like kind of feeling that ennui when you need something to change, but it's not. And then when you're confronted with a massive change and have no idea what to do with it and people may be thinking you're crazy for explaining this massive change in your life. Okay. But yeah, that that's about it. I'm not as avid as a reader as you both. I think Maggie is the most avid of, of all of us. I, I am always extremely impressed by how much you managed to read. Yeah. I This year, I have read so much more than I have in the last probably 15 years. Mm-hmm. There was one year in high school I read 50 books, and I've never cracked 40 since then. This year, I think I'm easily going to read 40 books. Uh-huh. So my stretch goal is 50. Oh my god. <laughs> I have been putting graphic novels into the mix quite a bit to, like, pad the numbers a little. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> yeah, the one I'm reading right now is very seasonal. It's called Fangs, mm-hmm. and it's about a vampire girl and her werewolf boyfriend. And I mean, it's, like, very cute. It's, I think con- counting it as an actual book that I've read probably is like disingenuous but it's so cute and I'm like really I'm really enjoying it I'm just like very charmed by it as we record it's October 24th so spooky books and stuff I also recently bought Mexican Gothic which I'm really excited to read so I need to get through my library books and then I'm going to stop requesting books for the library for a while because I have gotten way too many (laughs) lately you can find us on Instagram at Trope Confessions Pod, on Twitter at TropeConPod, on Tumblr at Trope Confessions, and on Gmail at TropeConfessions at gmail.com. Signing off, this is your OTP, Maggie and Aya. And Sam. <laughs> we could be polyamorous. One true thruple OTT. I'm okay with this. Bye. 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 <laughs> Trope Confessions is made by me, Aya McGuire, and my co-host, Maggie Reed. Our music was made and performed by Matt Lindauer. You can find his music on Bandcamp, and if you're listening on Friday, it's probably a Bandcamp Friday, when all proceeds from purchases made are given directly to the artists. I encourage you to support local music, indie artists, and other musicians by buying their music for Bandcamp Friday today. Our producer is Sam Shar. I heard a rumor that she's so cool they decided to clone her, which means she'll be the first of its kind, but not the last.